following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Um, we're going to be looking this morning at Luke chapter 20, and certainly Jesus here gives us uh, some insight into living life here and now. Some passages he points to the future and to heaven. This is definitely one more about life here and now. Uh, certainly how to prepare for heaven, but how to do it by how we live today. So let's read, uh, we'll be in Luke chapter 20, starting in verse uh, 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him, that's Jesus, at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness, and he said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Uh, the Jewish leaders uh, are really out to get Jesus. Uh, they, they are convinced he must be eliminated. And so they are trying every possible way they can to trap him. And a couple of weeks ago, we looked at their first attempt when the leaders themselves came and asked Jesus by what authority he was doing all these things. And they were hoping to trap him into some, uh, saying something that would be blasphemous. Uh, but Jesus turned that around on them and they found themselves caught in their own trap. When Jesus asked them, well, John's baptism, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And uh, they were made to look very foolish because they weren't able to answer that question. Uh, then Jesus speaks this parable against them where he clearly uh, shows their motives. Uh, so they're getting a lot smarter now and they're realizing, you know, we've got to plan this out better. They made some critical errors in their first trap. So this time they're much more calculating and much more careful. Uh, they meet together and they devise a plan that they are convinced will trap Jesus that will catch him in their grip where they will be able to uh, get rid of him. Uh, and of course, Jesus is going to freely and willingly lay down his life for, uh, for us. Right? He knows that he's just days away from the time, the hour, in which he will give up his life as a sacrifice for sin. But Jesus will not be trapped. Right? Jesus will give up his life at the time he decides according to the Father's will. And so in this account, we get just a great picture of Jesus' ability to escape trouble. And that's why, I don't know if you can see the picture very well, but it's a, an escape artist who's all bound up in chains and padlocked, uh, who, who's uh, able to break out. Right? And this is really where Jesus shows his brilliance, 
and, and, and so easily being able to work his way out of the trap set by the enemy. So let's look at, um, at the trap here. Uh, plan A did not work, so they come up with a plan B, right? Uh, and, and this is, this is the, the pieces of plan B. First of all, they need to hire sleazy actors, okay? Now, I know the Bible says spies, but that's really not the best translation of the word because a spy sounds like it's like James Bond or something. It was not James Bond. These were low-life uh, guys who were paid, or literally the, the word, the Greek word, implies the idea of paying a bribe, right? Paying a bribe for somebody so that they can trip him up, so they can uh, put on a disguise as a, as a follower, as a disciple, or as a genuine seeker, and uh, act and play out a part and come to Jesus and, and say, hey, you know, we're, we're really interested in your ministry. And this is a, a serious question that we've been wrestling with. Right? So they want to trick Jesus into um, saying something wrong. Uh, and and the, the leaders were, uh, were not front and center. They were off on the sides um, spying. They were really the ones spying as these actors were sent in to to un- unpack their plan. And they're watching, just waiting for Jesus to say something that they can, they can catch him, right? They can arrest him. They can get rid of him. So, um, so, so they, they've got this plan, and they hire their actors, and they get the best ones they can get to go out and pretend, it says, they, they pretend that they are interested. They pretend to be sincere. They pretend to be genuine. They're acting, Right? Uh, and the goal here is to, they, they realize the problem is that the crowds love Jesus. And so the, uh, the Jewish leaders don't want to arrest him themselves. And they get this idea, let's make it Pilate's problem. If we can get Jesus to say something against Rome, we'll, we'll, we'll just report it to, to Pilate, and Pilate will come arrest him, and then they will deal with him. They'll get rid of Jesus. They'll kill him. And, and we'll just be standing on the side going, oh, that's so sad, right, so sad. And that way they wouldn't uh, cause problems with the crowds because they needed the crowd's approval. We talked about that last week. Um, and they, they were convinced that this would not be hard to do. And most figures like Jesus who drew large crowds um, were oftentimes at odds with Rome. And, of course, the, Israel, the Jewish people as a whole wanted desperately to get out from underneath Roman rule. And so many, many zealots like Jesus came along who incited the, the, the crowds and, and drew huge crowds because they spoke of uh, is, Israeli nationalism and you know, down with Rome kind of stuff. So they, were, they thought they knew Jesus and they thought it wouldn't be hard to trick Jesus into saying something that would get him in serious trouble. Uh, so they've got their actors, they've, uh, they've got the goal, they want him to say something that will make him guilty of treason against Rome. And, uh, and beyond that, they decide to use cheap flattery, right? It says, so they, so they come, these actors come, and they say, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly. You show no partiality. You, you truly teach the way of God, right? So they try to flatter Jesus. Um, do, do you like being flattered? Well, sometimes if it's good enough, I kind of like it, right? There's nothing worse, though, than somebody who's flat, who tries to flatter you who doesn't know you very well, right? Who doesn't really get what, uh, what, what you are about. And so they try to compliment you by saying things that are actually not very complimentary, right? So if you've lived here very long uh, and you, 
You know, you're, you're, if you're a missionary and you've lived here long or whatever, and you go back home after three or four years and you visit your home churches and your friends and family, how many of you got this question? So how well do you speak Taiwanese? Can you get that question? I've only got it about 500 times, right? And it's like, you know, how do you answer that, right? You don't want to be too insulting, but the question's insult, insulting because they don't even know enough about you to know where you live or what language you're trying to learn, right? So, uh, so these guys are clever, and they have a sense about who Jesus is, and so they compliment him, they flatter him by picking out things that they believe would be um, impressionable on Jesus, that Jesus would value. And so while they may not be very sincere or genuine in their, their flattery, it's, it's important what they say. Because they're capturing popular opinion about Jesus, about Jesus' claims for himself. What kind of person is Jesus? Well, and it's great what they, what they say about him. He says, well, he teaches what is right. right? Jesus teaches truth. And he teaches scripture. He, he teaches the, the way things should be and the way people should truly live. And uh, certainly that was the reputation Jesus had. And certainly... That would have been flattering to Jesus. I mean, Jesus wanted to be known as one who spoke prophetically for God. He wasn't making up his own stuff. He was speaking truth from God. Uh, secondly, he says, they said, you don't show partiality. Right? And that's also true of Jesus. Jesus didn't water down his message depending on the audience. Okay, Jesus didn't preach one way to poor people in the rural villages and another way to the, uh, the Jewish leaders. He never shifted things around to, um, to win the favor of his audience. In fact, Jesus did quite the opposite. He was quite good at just making people mad at him everywhere he went. And uh, he, he could equally offend everybody. And that's, that's, that's my goal on Sunday morning, to equally offend everybody, right? Uh, show no partiality. Uh, and he says, they, they, truly, you teach the way of God, right? Jesus um, had that reputation, and that's why the crowds loved him. He spoke the truth, he spoke straight, and he, w- he had no hidden agendas, uh, which is a bit ironic because none of those things would be true of the, of the Jewish leaders. Right? They, they, they could not claim those things. But it was true of Jesus, so they tried to flatter him with those, those things. But then the heart of the trap is this, okay? The heart of the trap, and I, I'm sure they had meetings about this. I'm sure some guys stayed up all night plotting, how can we trap Jesus? And the whole thing is a bit funny because they, 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 they learn from their experience with Jesus on round one, right? What did Jesus do on round one that trapped them? Well, Jesus posed a question to them that put them in the midst of a dilemma they could not answer, right? Whose baptism was John's? Was it from God or from man? Remember, they were caught in this dilemma. Well, if we say it was from God, then Jesus will say, well, why didn't you follow him? Why didn't you repent? If we say it's from man, the crowds will stone us to death because they believe John was a prophet. So they found themselves trapped in this dilemma. So they go back and they start talking and say, hey, you know, that was pretty good. That was good. We need to do this to Jesus. Right? This is a great trick. And, and they learned well. They studied well what Jesus had done to them. And they, they said, we're going to turn this around on Jesus. We're going to put him in a dilemma that he can't answer. We'll give him a taste of his own medicine. Right? So they plot and they think and they come up with the perfect dilemma that they're convinced will trap Jesus. Right? 
And, and, and the, the, the dilemma is this. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Right? Should we, as Jewish people, as God's holy nation, as those called to be holy priests of God, should we pay a tax, a tribute tax, to Caesar? Now, this is why they thought this was such a brilliant scheme. It actually was quite good. Uh, it, it did create a huge dilemma. And these were the two sides, the two horns, the two sides of the dilemma. Uh, on the one side, the Jews hated Roman rule. Right? They despised daily that the nation of Israel was under Roman control and authority. That Pilate was the governor of Jerusalem and he was fully Roman. Right? There's nothing Jewish about him. Um, and they despise that, and, and uh, you know, every day on, on every Jew on every Roman coin is is a picture of Caesar, right? And to pay this tax to Caesar was just grating on them, right? It was it was like just just the worst act of of submission that they had to pay this tax, so they hated it, right? So many Jews uh, would 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 try to not pay the tax, and certainly. If you wanted to win favor with Jewish crowds, you wouldn't teach on the importance of paying all your taxes, right? Because that would not win you favor with the crowd. But there's even more to it than that. Another problem with this whole paying tax to Caesar thing is it wasn't just a general tax to a general government or a general leader, right? The coin, uh, on, 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 on Roman coins, specifically in this case a denarius, as Jesus asked for, um, it's stamped with, with Caesar's face, like most coins are. Uh, and it had a, an inscription that read this, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. The divine Augustus, right? On the reverse side was a picture of uh, Tiberius's mother, Livia, portrayed as the goddess of peace, right? Uh, and the inscription says, High Priestess. So... So if you're a Jew, you're a holy person. You, you are set aside as a holy nation. Right? And here you're being asked to pay a tribute tax. Okay? And the word tribute is important here. This is not just taxes in general. It's a tribute paid to Caesar who feels himself divine and, and a god. So a lot of Jews argued that to pay the tax was actually a form of idolatry. That to, to pay tribute to Caesar, you were, you were honoring him as a deity as he claimed on the coin. And to give that tribute to him was a form of idolatry. So, so could Jesus say, yeah, pay the tax, right? Um, the Jews think, boy, we got him there. He's, he cannot say that. So he, what he's going to have to say is, no, don't pay the tax. But that was the other side of the dilemma. To refuse to pay the tax, and even more so, to teach to stand up in front of public crowds and say, you should not be paying taxes to Rome. You should not be paying tribute to Caesar. You were guilty of treason against Rome. Right? You were treasonous. By, and, and the penalty was death. Right? If, the, if, if Jesus would say, absolutely, you should not pay taxes to Caesar. He's an idol. And to pay that tax is to worship this divine Caesar. And you're, you're, you're practicing an idolatry. You should never pay that tax. He says that uh, they, they win, right? They arrest him. They take him to Pilate. Say Jesus is guilty of treason. He should. He's worthy of death. You should execute this guy. So they feel that they indeed have Jesus trapped. 
They have wrapped the chains around him. They have put the padlocks on him. They have put the handcuffs on him. They have him right where they want him. There's no way he can escape this dilemma, right? Because no matter what he answers, they've got him. They've got him, right? Well, as it turns out, Jesus is very good at the art of escapology. Did you know that escapology is a word? It's a word. Does anybody know what escapology is? Anybody? One person, way back. Two people, okay. It is the practice of escaping from restraints or other traps. Uh, Escapologists are also classified as escape artists, right? Okay, the, the practice of escaping from restraints or traps. So, of course, the most famous guy was Harry Houdini, and he's kind of the father of escapology. Uh, not the first to do it, actually, but definitely made it famous. Um, and he would have all kinds of stunts where he would wrap himself up with chains and padlocks and handcuffs, and they would put him in a chamber that was filling up with water, and, and he would have you know just minutes to escape from all these locks and shackles and bonds and padlocks and free himself, and he was quite good at it. Um, uh, Jesus also proves to be a genius at escapology, right? They, they have wrapped him in chains, they have padlocked him, they have handcuffed his hands, they are convinced they have got him. But watch how easily Jesus picks the locks, unwraps the chains, and steps out of the bonds. This is what Jesus does. First of all, verse 23 says, He perceived their craftiness. Jesus gave them a soul-piercing look. And throughout Jesus' ministry, he was never clueless about people's character. Jesus knew how to read people's hearts. And we don't know, the Bible here doesn't say if he did that supernaturally, if the Holy Spirit revealed it to him, or if he was just very astute at reading people. We don't know. But the fact is, he didn't get people wrong. He knew who who he was dealing with. He knew who his friends were. He knew who his enemies were. And these guys were just not that good at acting, apparently, because he saw right through them. He saw their heart, and he knew they were not genuine. He knew they were not sincere. He was not flattered by their compliments. Because he knows what they're after. He knows exactly what they are trying to do to him. Um, That's a good reminder. Uh, God sees your heart. Jesus sees your heart. How often do we play games with God where we pretend, we flatter him, right? We say the things that we know God probably wants to hear so that he will answer our prayers, right? Right? We, we go through the motions thinking that we can somehow fool God. He sees our heart, right? He always sees our heart. He knows every thought and every intention of our heart. Uh, just beware of that, right? Beware of that. Uh, so he knows what's going on. And, and, and so he quickly works to expose their hypocrisy, their falseness, their, and not just the actors, but the Jewish leaders who are behind it all. And this is how he does it. It's brilliant. And we read this, and oftentimes we, we don't really get what's going on, so we miss some of the subtle stuff that's, that's in what Jesus does. So let me unpack it a bit. He exposes their hypocrisy this way. First of all, he, he asks them a question. He says, show me a denarius. Right? He says, show me, show me, show me the coin. Uh, the denarius was, the, was what they would pay uh, for the tribute tax. It was worth one day's wages. Right? So the actor's... Sort of flipping through their wallet, right? Flipping through their pockets and, and, and their bags. And sure enough, 
They pull out a denarius. Well, here's one right here. I've got one, right? Hands it to Jesus. Jesus takes the coin and he holds it up, right? Now, now get the context of what's going on here. Um, at the root of their, their question, at the root of their argument, is that Caesar is idolatrous and corrupt, right? A godless ruler of a godless nation. And so the assumption is that how, can, how could Israel, how could Jews in any way... Um, be an accomplice with such an evil government, right? How could they in any way have a part or a place with Rome, which is so wicked and so pagan? It's a corrupt government. So surely the Jews should have nothing to do with Rome. They should step away from the unholiness of everything that's about Rome, right? But who's carrying around Roman coins every day? Well, obviously them, right? They go, oh, we got one right here. I've got one in my pocket, right? They all operated with Roman currency every day. Right? The Jews loved Roman currency. Right? Uh, when they got paid, they wanted to be paid in Roman currency. What would be ironic, and we don't know this, it doesn't say this, but uh, they paid these actors, right? How many denarius did they pay them? Right? When they pulled out the coin, could it be that that was one of the coins that the Jews had paid them uh, to do their job? Very possible, right? Very possible. And certainly, if the actors, if the Jews had tried to pay them in temple shekels, <laughs> forget that. Give us real money. You're going to pay us off. Pay us off in real money. None of this cheap Jewish shekel stuff. We want real Roman money, right? Um, they, they have been already busted, right? He says... Um, you know, you, you, you think you're too holy to pay a Roman tax, but you're not too holy to use Roman money, right? Uh, you have no problem spending Roman currency. Um, you do not barter in grain and goats, right? You buy and sell in Roman cash. And so he begins to unravel their hypocrisy, the hypocrisy behind their argument, so he holds up the coin and, and uh, he moves on in his argument. You know, the, the chains are starting to loosen a little, right? The, the locks are starting to fall off here and there. And Jesus asks a simple question. Okay, whose likeness and inscription is on the coin? Right? Who's stamped, whose image is stamped on this coin? And they said, Caesar's. Right? What was the significance of Caesar's face on a coin? Uh, to this day... Uh, what currency has Mickey Mouse on it? I don't know of any. Maybe at Disneyland, right? But it's not real currency. Currency has the face of its leaders. Right? Now, some countries like the United States use all dead guys. I'm not quite sure why they do that. Most countries use living reigning rulers. Maybe it's because in some countries we change rulers so fast we couldn't keep up with it. I don't know, so we have to use dead guys. I don't know. Uh, but traditionally, the way it worked is, is the, the reigning king would have his face on the currency. Well, what was the point of that? Why was that significant? Where did that come from? Well, early on, kings recognized the, the connection between their power over a country and money. Right? And money. And for kings to consolidate power they saw that they needed to quickly consolidate currency. Um, and it was to the advantage of the king, but it was also to the advantage of all the citizens. 
to use local local currency, in other words, just the currency of your little village or your little little area, was a problem because when you would go to trade in another village or another place far away, they, they wouldn't want your currency. They wouldn't want the local currency. So the way this worked is a king would extend his empire and his rule and his reign, and as he became powerful over more and more places, he would... Um, you know, he would use his currency, he would ex- extend his currency to those places as well. And there was great benefit in it for all involved. His trade became a lot easier. Commerce and all the parts of the kingdom were possible because of common currency. And the way that you would guarantee or certify that that currency was the, the, the real currency, the currency of the kingdom, is you would put the king's face on it. And the king's face meant, yes, this is the registered, recognized currency of the kingdom. So everywhere you go in the kingdom, it has the same value and worth and purchasing power, and it made trade and commerce possible. So the way it worked is the bigger the king, the bigger the kingdom, the more widespread the currency. And to this day, this this is how it works in the world, right? If you go to, for example, uh, say Laos, right? Uh, And you go in there with U.S. dollars, you won't have problem anywhere with people wanting to take your U.S. dollars or your euros, right, or your uh, British pounds, right? They like that money because it has great value and worth, right? But if you get Laotian kips, I think it's called, or, or even worse, if you go to Vietnam and come back with the Vietnamese dong, right, and, and you, want to, you, want, you want to exchange it here in Thailand, good luck, right? You want to go to the, you know, to Siam TV and buy a computer and you want to use Vietnamese currency? They're going to laugh at you, right? Just exchanging it is a problem. If you, if you, want, to ex- if you want to exchange Vietnamese currency and get $100, you know how much you would, $100 US, you know how much cash you would need? 2.2 million. 2.2 million Vietnamese dong to get 100 US dollars, right? So it works here in the world today. It's how it works. Um, that face is a sign of, of the empire, and it guarantees its worth and value. And again, uh, the Jews were all over this. Um, they loved Roman currency because it was making them wealthy. People came, and, and Israel was a crossroads for, for Ro- the Roman Empire. And they loved the exchange of money and goods that traveled through their country. And having Roman currency benefited them greatly. And Jesus already talked about the greed of the Jewish leaders. Their pockets were full of Roman currency and they loved what Roman currency meant. And they loved that Caesar's face was stamped on it. Uh, The the temple shekel, by the way, had no face on it. Because being... Good Jew, you can't have images, you know, you don't want to worship. So they had like a menorah and a little cup, right? You know, you didn't put an image on it. But nobody wanted it, right? Nobody wanted it. If you went to Rome and wanted to buy groceries in Rome, you're not going to use the temple shekel. Um, but you see that the, 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 the chains are getting looser, right? The chains are getting looser and their whole argument starting to crumble around them, Right? So Jesus answers him. He says, that's right, it's Caesar's face, Caesar. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. 
and shoom, you hear rattling of chains as everything just falls off, right? Um, Jesus says, in essence, in the sphere where Caesar has power and where his name has given economic stability, and in as much as you are daily benefiting from that stability and that economic system by buying and selling and trading, getting rich off of, of what Caesar has done as ruler of the Roman Empire, well, then to some extent you're obligated to pay the tax he asks of you. You use the system, pay the tax, right? You, you benefit from the services of the Roman Empire, pay the tax, right? Caesar has a right to demand it of you if you're going to barter in his coins. They're his, right? He doesn't want all of them. He's only asking for, he's only asking for a little tax. Pay up, right? Pay up. Uh, but, he goes on further, he says, but give to God what, be- what belongs to him. In the same way, your life is stamped with the image of God. His kingdom and his authority are being expanded throughout the world, and you belong to him. If you claim to belong to him, you should be giving God, you should be giving him your devotion, allegiance, and worship. Um, See what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, look, giving tax to... To, to Caesar, no matter how corrupt he is, no matter how much it's idolatry, it's not confused with your worship of God. Right? We have duties and obligations to both civil government uh, for the services and, and benefits that they give into our life. But that's not to be confused with the worship and adoration we give to God. You can give your tax to Caesar and you can give your worship and full devotion to God and there's not a conflict. Chunk, everything drops off. And all of a sudden, Jesus is no longer trapped, right? They were sure they had him, but Jesus so easily steps out of the trap. And it ends this way. It says, And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. <laughs> They're all like, wow, that was, that was actually quite good. <laughs> um, wow. Never thought of that one. Good point, Jesus. And they have nothing to say, right? They are dumbfounded and silent before Jesus. Um, They are astonished by his wisdom. As much as they hate him, as much as they want to get rid of him, as much as they want to kill him, they stand in awe of his wisdom, which they cannot beat, but they cannot overcome. And they realize they cannot trap him. They cannot catch him because he again has outwitted them. What does this have to do with us? What can this teach us about life? Well, we all heard the the, the slogan, or maybe you haven't. Maybe you heard the slogan, uh, the only two things in life that are certain are death and taxes, right? Death and taxes. Um, the quote is oftentimes uh, attributed to Mark Twain, but it's, uh, it actually was used in a letter by Benjamin Franklin where he says the only two certainties in life are death and taxes. Um, I thought that was a good, kind of captures what Jesus is teaching here. Um, we must face our duties to government. 
We must face the reality that someday we die and we will stand before God. How do we handle our responsibilities towards civil authority? And how do we prepare for our duty to answer, give an answer for our life before God? Well, let me give you three things that I think Jesus uh, teaches here. Um, first of all, it's, it's quite simple. Pay your taxes. Okay, pay your taxes. Um, it, it should, we, we really shouldn't have to talk about this much, but I, I'm amazed at how often Christians and missionaries and full-time Christian workers feel that civil laws are optional. Like, like there's some laws that obviously, you like killing people, you know, obviously you can't violate that one. That's too big. But a lot of the little pity laws, you know, like little taxes and little things, little this, little that, you know, are kind of just suggestions, right? We've lived in Thailand too long where everything's just in a suggestion, right? And uh, we think, well, you know, Thai people drive the wrong way and they run through red lights, so therefore if they do it. I should be able to do it, right? I don't need to follow the traffic laws. Nobody else seems to. And they certainly don't enforce them. So why should I, right? Be honest, does anybody think that way? Or more importantly, does anybody drive that way? Right? Well, I confess, many times I do. Many times I do. Right? Many times I do not follow the stated obvious laws of the land. Right? Is that okay? No, it's not okay. Right? Jesus says, we owe a duty to the government. Right? And, and much like the Jews, it's really easy for us to think this way. Well, the Thai government is corrupt. They're, there's all kinds of corruption. There's all kinds of problems. You know, it's a coup government. They didn't even get elected, right? And, and they're, they don't follow the laws. They don't in, you know, enforce the laws. So therefore, I don't have to take it very seriously. Jesus says no, right? It is not about the character of the government or its leaders that determines our obedience, right? We, we owe it before God to keep the laws, to pay taxes, to follow uh, what, what we know to be true within the, the civil code of how to live and function, how to drive, how to um, do what the government requires of us. Uh, we should set a very high ethical standard in how we relate to government, especially because we're Christians, right? Especially because we name the name of Jesus, Right? We should be above and beyond reproach. And I'm just constantly amazed at how often this gets so easily pushed aside. And I'll grant it is easy because oftentimes it's not hard to cheat the government, right? Um, it, it's just not hard to do. And, and chances are you can cheat the government the rest of your life and not get caught. Right? Um, we, we need to pay our taxes, I, I remember talking with one missionary a long, long time ago who said, I don't pay any taxes. And I was like, and, and he's, he was from the same country that I'm from, so I know how the tax laws work. And I'm like, well, that's impressive. How do you do that? And he says, well, I just count everything I spend as a ministry expense. So it's like, so assuming so you, you and your wife go out on a date to dinner and you count that ministry expense. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you go on vacation to the beach. Oh, that's ministry expense. You know, I'm ministering to my wife. I'm recharging, right? Spending time with God. He, everything in his life, he caused ministry expense. And I'm thinking, you know, an IRS agent may not see it that way, right? They may not agree with your interpretation of the law. Right? 
Yeah, it's easy to cheat. But we need to have a high ethical standard, right? Even if it means paying more. Anybody here love paying taxes? No, right? Uh, with our foundation, we, uh, we rent lots of properties. We rent lots of buildings. And if, if, if you have lived here very long, you probably run into this. Um, when, when, when a landowner rents a house to you, there's an extra tax they have to pay because they're getting revenue off the property. So in addition to property tax, they need to pay a revenue tax. Right? But no homeowners pay this, right? No home, homeowners pay that. And they'll lie, they'll, they'll do whatever to the government to make sure they don't have to pay this tax. So when we discovered that these taxes were not being paid, uh, we started negotiating deals up front with landowners saying, we are a Christian organization, we're a, a Christian ministry, we have to pay this tax, right? We can't sign a contract with you unless this tax is going to get paid. Um, well, guess who ends up paying it? Well, we do, right? The landowners don't. But we say, look, it doesn't matter who, that tax has to be paid because it's the law. And they look at us like we are out of our minds. It's like, well, but you're never going to get caught. doesn't matter, right? It's what the law demands. It's mind-boggling to them, right? It's what we do. Uh, and going down the list, you know, um, there's so many ways here in Thailand you can work the system, you can go around government officials. Jesus says, pay the tax, keep the law. Follow the highest level of integrity and ethics in the way you deal with civil authorities. Okay, enough of that one. Uh, second thing, uh, worship God, right? Uh, our relationship to civil authority is one thing, but much more important, much more significant, much weightier is what we owe to God, right? We, we are stamped with his image. And, and more than that, Jesus laid down his life to redeem us, right? We have been purchased at, at a price, right? He, he in, in many respects, he owns us, and we owe him a debt of worship and thanksgiving and praise and, and devotion and obedience, right? Yeah, give to civil authorities what you need, but much more importantly, give to God what he is due, Right? Are we diligent about that? Are we careful that we are um, that we know what God is asking of us, and that we are faithful and diligent to give to Him the worship and adoration and love and trust that He's asking? Right? Give to Caesar what, what is Caesar's, but give to God what is His. Right? Our very life belongs to Him. And thirdly, and I think this is really the main point of, of, of the story is we can trust Jesus because he is amazingly wise. Right? Uh, we, we had to walk away with this from the story, just go, man, Jesus is my superhero. Right? Houdini was good, but he's got nothing on Jesus. He's amazing. Right? He's amazing. Uh, these guys, smart people, you know, smart, the leaders of the best minds in the land, and they have devised a scheme where they are just convinced Jesus cannot get out of this. And Jesus walks out of it like it's nothing. Right? And he leaves them standing speechless, right? How cool is that, right? And that's the Jesus we know and love and worship and serve. He is not an idiot, right? He is genius, genius. And he's genius partly because uh, 
mental capacity, but more than that, he's genius because he he has no partiality. He's not confused by human agendas. He sees things he sees things truly and purely as God instructs him. I think of this verse in Pro, familiar passage, Proverbs three five to seven. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Right? How often do we really, really rely and trust on his wisdom? Now, I find like, like when I'm preaching, I absolutely do this because uh, it just kind of makes sense. You're going to preach the Bible. I want God's wisdom on that. But, uh, but how often in life do I, I take kind of the, the not so spiritual things, you know, like how I handle money, how I handle time, how I deal with kind of what seem like neutral relationships. And I don't consult God on those things at all, right? Because I think, well, I'm not, I'm not a dummy. I can figure this out, right? And so I daily have conversations and I answer emails and I make decisions and I plan things. How often do I stop and say, God, I, I want your wisdom in this thing. I want your solution. Far too often I solve problems on my own. Right? It's not that God didn't give us a mind. It's not that he doesn't want us to think. He does. But he has a wisdom that far exceeds ours. Right? He, he knows things about the future and about our circumstances and about what's going on that we cannot see or know. Do we really seek his advice and counsel in everything? Or do we find ourselves just plodding along, making decisions? And honestly, you think we'd figure this out because how many of those decisions don't actually work out so well, Right? You plan things, you do things, you make choices. It's a disaster, right? And then you pray, God help. Right? Why not just start with seeking his wisdom in the first place, right? In everything. Um, he is amazing, right? He is infinitely wise, but he's infinitely good and he wants to impart that wisdom to us. He doesn't want it to be secret, he longs to, to guide us. Right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him so that he can lead you, so he can direct your paths. And I think just as we end, it's, it's great to end with where the story ends. Let me just read the verse one more time. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answers, they became silent. Let's take a moment to marvel at the wisdom of Jesus, the wisdom of God. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.